and we're back with another episode. This is Fluid Truth, and I'm attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas. We explore a simple question of whether there is equity in the justice system. The content offered in this segment is personal reflection and interpretation. The views of my guests are not necessarily the views of Fluid Truth or Quinnipiac University. For clarity, this conversation has been edited. It was my pleasure to share space with my guest, Mr. Jeff Lee. Mr. Lee is a political partner at the Truman National Security Project. Amongst many things, he was Deputy Director of External and International Affairs and Deputy Cabinet Secretary to former California Governor Jerry Brown. We sat down together to discuss his experiences, and he shared how being an Asian American in our country informs the conversation about equity and justice. It was so insightful to have Jeff here with us at Fluid Truth. Jeff, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that we're able to talk today. Shirley, it is such a pleasure to be able to speak with you today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I mean, we've had some good conversations for other reasons, but now we get a chance to dive into an area that we're really, both of us are super passionate about. Um, And before we even do that, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Give me a little bit of who you are that you're willing to share. Sure. I'm a Sagittarius. I like walks on the beach. Um, (laughs) That might be my old Tinder profile, but no, uh, you know, I'm um, Jeff Lee. I'm a Vietnamese American, originally from Southern California. And actually sort of to talk about me, I feel like it's talking about my parents who uh, were boat people who escaped communist Vietnam after the fall uh, of of Saigon. And they left on a 32 foot raft landing in Thailand and then in the Philippines and then land in the U.S. I was born a year later. And so my life has been very much colored by that view uh, coming as a uh, immigrant into this country that let us in. Um, you know, when you look at polling, Vietnamese, Vietnamese community members, when they landed in the 70s and early 80s, approval was about 35%. So if you think about sort of the modern times, when you think about refugees and immigrants, others who are pursuing a life in America, um, there was always a degree of skepticism when they arrived. But generally speaking, when they do come here, they make a significant impact. And my parents, who are now farmers in southern Georgia, allowed for me you know, to have the opportunities to be in public policy, to be in international affairs, and to be able to speak with you today about justice and social issues, which I'm so excited for us to dig in today. That sounds wonderful in terms of, I mean, I did get there. You're Sagittarius, but there's so much more than that. So, <laughs> well, the walks on the beach, obviously, <laughs> uh, and long distance running. But, but yeah, I mean, so, you know, my, um, you know, my career sort of taken me, um, you know, into the, you know, the corners of multilateral diplomacy at the United Nations. I've had the chance to work overseas in Afghanistan, supporting U.S. troops and our efforts with international forces. I've had the opportunity to work in Congress and various nonprofits, and then serving as a senior advisor to the governor of California. I'm in the private sector now, but you know, for me, the, the bend of justice and creative you know, creativity and innovation is still something I'm really passionate about. And obviously, in the world we live in today, we need to be acknowledging things that are not perfect so we can work on those things. Now, America is still an incredible democratic experiment. Where else in life can the son of a chicken farmer be able to speak with you about these issues today? I, I can't think of many places on earth. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. 
I love that. And that's a perfect segue because you come from this amazing vantage point, having seen, having had this family dynamic, having this history. So when I pose to you the question of equity, how does that hit you? What's the first thing that comes to mind for you? (laughs) When I think of equity, I think of just how far we are from that. I'll give you an example. I, you know, there was recent data to suggest that black home ownership is the lowest it's been since the 1960s and that the wealth gap between black and white communities is about eight to one. This is in 2022 data, right? Um, the, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department uh, in the Biden administration have acknowledged these structural challenges. And, and you know, when you talk about economic growth and prosperity, I got to ask, where are communities of color benefiting from these opportunities? Just recently, there's been data that's released that Unemployment is lower now. There's been economic growth, the fastest it's been since 1984. But I'm not so sure if everyday folks are really benefiting from that. So when I think of equity, just purely in the sense of haves and have nots, I still think we're quite far away, be it in economic terms and structural terms and in justice terms going forward. And I think the reckoning, whatever terminology you want to use in 2020 following the murder of George Floyd, I think only exposed just a small flake of what we're talking about, a, uh, a history that bends 400 years in a direction that many of us have still not acknowledged. There's a lot of challenges to this country. There's still a lot of amazing things, but I think at a very important starting point, just acknowledging that we're very far from equity, we're very far from justice, and that this is an experiment that we should continue to be working on for all communities of color, especially the most marginalized, the most vulnerable, and women who are disproportionately affected by this, especially during this pandemic. 75% of women are the sole caretakers of their children. Guess what's happening when we have outbreaks in daycares and schools? They're not a part of this economy. And that's disproportionately worse for the women of color who, by the way, work in the daycare in school industry, who are then at the front lines of doing really difficult things. Yeah, I think we're pretty far from equity. Those are some examples off the top of my head. And I think you raised some really good points and how fitting it is now to still speak about the impact of the pandemic. So the pandemic has illuminated these real big issues for us and some of which, you know, you just made some reference to. But for us to consider this means that we can't do it in just a vacuum. We have to do it in this this real life situation. And this is what we're faced with right now. So now I want to just jump into this amazing article that you wrote. You wrote this article for a political magazine, and it says, I thought I knew how to succeed as an Asian in U.S. politics. Boy, was I wrong. I want to hear about that, Jeff. Okay. You know, during the pandemic, I think like many, I felt this sense of helplessness. And in light of all the inequities that were highlighted during the pandemic, you know, the small little gaps became widening chasms. I struggled to understand how I could contribute to the conversation. You know, I thought about it intellectually, academically, how could I sort of support other communities of color? And one thing I recognized and realized is that for me to be able to speak honestly about how we can support our brothers and sisters I needed to talk about my own experience. And I'll tell you, Shirley, talking with strangers is easy. Talking with your friends and family and loved ones about your experiences is so scary. 
and to be able to write about the things that have happened in your life, which I spent my entire life sort of avoiding and hiding, it was terrifying to me. And especially to see it on paper, to see it on Apple News, to be able to have strangers from all around the world reach out. It was one of the most um, vulnerable places I've ever been. But I felt in my heart that if everyday Americans did not understand that Asian Americans were not a part of this conversation, that folks in the political circle were not, we were not immune from these things too. It was so important to highlight. And I wanted to put a face on it. And whether it was my face or not being a good idea, I don't know. But I know that it shattered a lot of people's conceptions and misconceptions about Asians. And I think it was really important to talk about the fact that just because you go to these shiny schools and have these shiny office jobs doesn't mean you're completely devoid of discrimination. And that it was it was really vital to speak about and the irony of working for a senior level official, a governor of the fifth largest economy in the world, and having to deal with inequity even in my own workplace was ironic and tragic at the same time. Would you mind giving a quick summary, some of the points of the article that you enjoyed the most? I know it is out there for all to be able to grab it. And I do encourage, just get a read of this. It's going to change your perspective. I'd love to. I'd love to. I think first, I, I wanted to highlight sort of just the fact that, you know, when be, the discussion about education and race is a really interesting discussion. And I know that there are opponents to having a more honest dialogue about our history. And I wanted to share my personal history related to, you know, issues of racism. Yeah, I mean, sort of lowercase r and uppercase r. And I started with uh, a situation in my elementary school where I wanted to be fifth grade class president. And I was going to run and I was going to whip votes and do all that good stuff. And then one of the boys in my class told me that no one would vote for me because everybody knew that I ate dog. Okay. Never mind that I had pet dogs or that I just think that was so bizarre. Where does that come from? And that was one thing. But then to see on my desk after lunchtime, a picture drawn on my desk of me eating a dog and, you know, me crying into my little classroom, you know, class uh, bathroom and a little boy coming in saying, hey, did you did you just not do well on your math test? All these things you know, these things aren't just like, you're not just born into those things, you know, you're taught these things. And that was sort of the start. I was, I was nine, 10 years old, right? It's something I still live with every day. And that starting point led me down this path of a career in life, trying to redeem or trying to decrease these gaps, information gaps, equity gaps, economic gaps, whatever you want to talk about. And having I mean, having the opportunity to be at the highest levels of state-level government and taking meetings with people who, for whatever reason, didn't take me seriously. I, you know, partly because of maybe I was new to the business, but probably because of how I looked or how I was perceived. I'd have meetings and discussions with policymakers, lobbyists, other interest groups who did not treat me with the normal decorum that you would expect. And worse, the deals that we would hash out would generally not be respected. 
So I came up with this idea through a mentor of mine that I would bring someone in the meeting with me. See what happens, you know, like a buddy system, or as my, you know, women friends from the eighties would say, you know, buddy system has been a long policy, a long time coming. And guess what? When I brought a white colleague with me, no surprise, there was decorum, there was civility, and the deal generally was respected. I then realized what was happening here, that maybe, maybe my background really had a significant impact. And it was deeply embarrassed, surely, because when you're representing a political principle, you're representing the weight of the office, but also the person. The person who was elected by the public, the people, and I was failing at doing things, carrying out his wishes and providing recommendations necessary. That to me was a very striking experience that I would not have expected and didn't realize because how long have I living this bizarro uh, alternate life? I mean, could I bring white people to all the things in my life? Should I have brought white people to my dates? Should I have brought white people to my graduation? Should I, you know, it makes me wonder. Maybe the customer service was a little different. You know, I, I just think maybe the opportunities that I was presented with maybe weren't the same or pure. So may I ask you this, Jeff? So I know you're reflecting on these experiences, but does it make you feel like less than a professional? Does it demean some of your experiences? What do you walk away with with that? Because that's a challenging circumstance. Well, I walk with number one, the knowledge and acceptance that we're not all equal. Okay. That how we're perceived determines how we're valued. I learned that at eight years old when I mowed lawns for very wealthy people. Okay. I was treated very differently when I was the help. But the big takeaway, the big picture, maybe wasn't about a degradation of my values or what I thought my values were and are. The conclusion I came to was one that was so outside the realm of being Asian, because being Asian in the United States means work hard, put your head down, blend in, pretend nothing bothers you, and then everything works out for you. But there's sort of an implicit cost if you do that, namely that you lose a part of who you are to blend in and also to be in some ways devalued. And when I, you know, when I got spit on, I got spit on at an airport by a complete stranger. I got told to go back to China. Okay. Never mind that my parents are from Vietnam. I mean, that's a technicality. But the feeling of I was born here, I love apple pie. I love baseball. I feel more American than most Americans. And still, because of somebody just taking a, an askance view of me, determined that I was less than them, less than American, and probably less than human, just because of my physical appearance was something quite hard. That sucks. The thing that's worse is about a dozen people looking around, didn't say anything, all turned away, walked away. And that only confirmed the devaluation of who I was. So this was the conclusion I came with, which is the following in the piece, is that for Asian Americans to truly be a part of this society, this, this kaleidoscope of democracy, they need to bet on themselves. They need to say enough. They need to speak up. They need to go against all the Asian stereotypes. They need to fight for things and they need to be vocal in supporting other communities and learn from other communities of color who've been in a struggle much longer than Asian Americans have been. 
So Jeff, tell me, what does that look like? What does it look like to show up, to be vocal in, in a practical sense? What, what's your takeaway there? Yeah, I mean, um, on one level, one piece is the one of the most important pieces is learning your history, understanding where we have come as a country. And, um, you know, there's been recent efforts in the United States to, uh, you know, have a further discussion about Asian American history in this country. But you have Asian Americans, surely, in this country that have been here in the 19th century, since the 19th century. Longer, they've been here longer than most Irish Americans or German Americans or Norwegian Americans. But somehow we have this feeling of being the other forever. We're sort of this forever othering, right? That's one piece. History is so important to learn. The second component, and I would say this related to history, is a feeling of, of taking back the story. That, um, you know, usually it's the case, oh, the Vietnam War, that was really hard. And then these refugees came. So you're coming, you know, these communities are coming from a place of trauma. Yes. And a place of tragedy. Yes. But also it should be, it's a very American story. It's about overcoming, you know, the odds and now contributing to the society, contributing to the rich fabric of what makes our country so wonderful. I love what you just said about taking back the story. Yeah. I just wanted to underscore that and highlight that. I just love what you said. That we're not victims, we're, we're, and we're more than just survivors, right? We've overcome. And that overcoming is still a long-term process. It's a lifetime's effort. And if you really want to overcome, you're going to help others overcome too. That's important. So the third piece, and this is one of the most important components I, I say when I speak to groups or organizations, is having everybody, everybody take bystander training classes so that if people see bad stuff happen, they know what to do. Instead of walking away from a situation saying, oh, not my problem. That's really important. And Asian Americans Advancing Justice, uh, the organization Hollaback, they do great uh, bystander trainings on how to de-escalate a situation, how to be proactive in supporting an ally. I mean, I hate that word allyship because it feels so pedestrian, but it's more like a, it's more like an accomplice, you know, helping a person be able to stand up for themselves and reclaim their humanity is something that's just so critical to this time. And those are some things I would say, how, how can we fight back? Those are a couple very small examples. I think of a few more, but you know, those ones I wanted to leave with our audience here today. And I think you really are painting this picture that there are needs. A lot of times, again, I'm a black woman in America. So a lot of times I focus on the issues surrounding people who look like me or, you know, my family, my children. But there is such a larger scope for us to all learn from, learn about, and kind of dive into the healing. And it's healing from so many other communities. And I'm so appreciative that you're sharing this, Jeff, because whereas I don't think that it is a, um, it's a bubble for me, but a lot of times the focus is really just not outside to everyone. So I appreciate you bringing that focus out. It's exhausting too, by the way. <laughs> and we've You're not kidding. About You're not kidding. It's exhausting, right? Whenever some horrible murder is captured on TV, I'm sure you are completely bombarded with text messages. Are you okay? What can I do? Because they have you know white guilt generally. What can they do? And gosh, like, you know, yeah, money. Yeah, organize. But how about, uh, you know, work on dismantling some of these structures together, right? And you can dismantle them in all the small ways. Um, one thing I want to highlight, um, you know, for the audience here is uh, 
you know, in this area of COVID, right, there's this sort of twindemic. One is the aspect of public health, right? And obviously the deaths from the virus, which it shocks me that we're at, what, 800,000 deaths in this country. It's an insane number. But also the case that the second demic, the twindemic, has been an, uh, a very active vocal um, blatantness in racism. And one of the challenges I've certainly seen uh, especially in the Asian American community, has been a rise in anti-Asian sentiments, discrimination that we've seen. Um, the FBI recently released a report that said that hate crime um, has been as at the highest levels it's been since 2009. And Asian Americans are the number one group. You know who's number two, though? Black folks, right? So no surprise. Yeah. No right. surprise to me right. that it's Asians and Black folks, right? right. So just to say that there's such a... Um, you know, for whatever reason, there's this trope that, you know, black and Asian communities have this thing. And I find that so disingenuous. But it's also to say that, you know, there is a lot more in common that the two groups have than they don't. And certainly this is a part of the trend line that we're seeing is that, you know, black and Asian folks um, do face very overt, overt um, um, conflicts, uh, but they're insidious in different ways. Right. Um, you know, when an Asian person is told they're really hardworking, that's code for you don't have executive presence. So you're a great worker bee. Right. So there's like little it's little things. I'll, I'll give you an example. Stuff happening on the street just two weeks ago. You know, I had a guy come up to me uh, and ask me where the best Chinese food place was. And like normally I'm OK with that. But he was like, oh, yeah, I just had to ask since you're obviously, you know, you're one of them. But it was said in a way that was semi-hostile right and then he sort of gave me a ching chong ching thing which happens from time to time and i was like what's the noise for white people i i don't know what that is though is it also like a ping pong paint what do you think right i try to diffuse it with humor but sometimes yeah you try to right i mean i had a few months ago a guy go up to me in the middle of daylight asking me if he could rub my belly for good luck and you know my answer was i'm not a genie you know, so, you know, it, there's very, I mean, it seems kind of innocent, but it really is sort of, de you know, degrades who you are as a, I don't know, a human being, a, a, let's just say a grown ass person. We can just go that way too. I mean, um, these are things that happen to me pretty regularly in my life. So at what point do you just get tired of the comments? You know, I mean, I'm already tired of the comments, but again, as an Asian, you know, when I got spit on at the airport, the first thing I came up with saying was, gosh, if I had brought an, I would have brought an umbrella if I knew it was going to rain. That's the first thing I said, because here's the thing. We've been conditioned to diffuse the situation because we have this guilt and shame that it's our fault. And then we need to deescalate and move on quickly because we'll get hurt. Because guess what? community of color, you're probably more likely to be killed, right? Right? I mean, imagine the security folks that showed up. Who do you think would have been shot? Probably me, not the other person, right? I don't think there's any surprise there. So that's why I needed to get out of that situation, you know, for my family's sake. And, you know, frankly, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a martyr. I don't want to go on and live my life. But I also still want to contribute. And that's why we're, we're having this conversation, even if it's hard to hear. And maybe it's not something anyone's heard of. You know, it's been a while since they've heard about these issues. You know, I mean, just you probably saw in recent news of the Asian-American woman who was, you know, pushed on the subway train in the city. I mean, it's um, that's a feeling that a lot of folks in the community have, that they're only two hands away from being a, a story. That's a very prevalent feeling. 
Jeff, you're not an angry person. So how do you step away from the anger? The anger is what they want you to do, right? They want they want to goad you into the fight so they can justify the violence, right? I try to take a I try to take a bigger lens about justice, right? Because the arc of justice is is longer, but bends to to the path of righteousness. I think that's true, one hundred percent. It just sucks during, and it's so hard to take the long game approach. But the reality is, if if you go beneath your level and you want to fight in the mud, you're just in the mud. You might win that day, but you're losing the big picture because you're losing who you are. And I'm a proud American. I want to take the high road. I don't want to wrestle in the mud with these nincompoops, right? Even though there's way more of them than I thought in the last few years. I think we can agree there's way more. Probably even in our families, there's a couple, right? And that's even scarier if you think about it. Um, I will tell you, um, after that piece came out in Politico that you highlighted, I did receive a lot of messages, a very humbling series of messages from around the world. But I also received a ton of death threats. And the number one group of people who sent me death threats were from other Vietnamese Americans. And it broke my heart. Wow. It broke my heart. They call me a communist. They call me a sellout. They call me a socialist. I mean, they use those terms in a way that, you know, it's derogatory. Um, you know, I, I, mean, I don't know where they think my economic and political theory is, but nevertheless, it's, it's, it's really humbling. It's really quite tragic that the, the exact folks you're trying to connect with are also the same ones who are perpetuating these structures, right? The divide and conquer mindset. Because as you know, Divide and conquer only helps one group. That's it. And it don't help you and me and our brothers and sisters. That's the truth. So at this point, I mean, you're a very accomplished individual. And my interest now is where do you move on to next to move forward in this opportunity to heal and to provide this education, even if it's hurtful, even if it's hard, even if it's a difficult conversation? You know, in terms of in terms of what's next, I, one of the things I do, I try to speak with companies and organizations as much as I can to talk about um, curriculum, right? Especially anti-racism curriculum in general. Um, you know, among you know, according to Stop AAPI Hates, which is a informal organization that collects um, reported acts of violence or discrimination against the Asian American Pacific Islander community. The two places where Asian Americans face the, the biggest sort of acts of discrimination are number one, areas of public transit. So no surprise if you're walking on the sidewalk or on your bus, that happens. By the way, uh, two-thirds of those incidents are for women. Um, so if you're an Asian woman, you have it way worse than a guy. So let's just acknowledge that the intersection part of it, right? It's quite awful. So women have it way worse than I ever will. And the second piece is actually at the workplace. And so I do spend a ton of energy, surely, speaking with um, chief people officers and human resource you know, leaders about what they should be doing to communicate about these very sensitive, complex issues um, to their workforce. One of which is um, just, again, trying to understand history. One thing um, I try to push and support is to have every company have the opportunity to have their workforce uh, watch the PBS special on Asian Americans. If you haven't watched it, I highly recommend it. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes here. That I find just incredibly powerful. And, and here's the truth. 
a lot of folks don't know about Asian American history. You know who else doesn't know about Asian American history? Asian Americans. So few. So few. And it's something, again, more than just building railroads. It's more than just that. Don't get me wrong. The Transatlantic Railroad is a big accomplishment. But there, there, there is more to that mosaic, more to the contributions of these communities, especially in this pandemic era when Asian Americans are contributing as small business owners, serving as frontline civilians, and also being a part of the healthcare sector that probably gave you your vaccine to allow you to not die. So there are contributions that just so few folks know about this broader community, which, by the way, 50 ethnicities, 100 languages minimum. It's a pretty complex group. 6% of the country, fastest growing group in the country. And guess what? Politically, Shirley, they owe neither party anything. It's complicated, you know, so if you, um, you know, in the 2020 elections, um, you know, more than half of Asian American Pacific Islander voters weren't even contacted by either political party. Think about that. Like they don't exist. Now it's the community's obligation as every individual to speak up so that you can be heard, but it goes against all the programming. And that's where you need to have these discussions in the workplace, at home. And the second thing I would say that I try to encourage among friends and loved ones is to have their friends talk about their Asian American background or history. Because we actually very few in the community even talk to others about their experiences. That's something that's quite rare. And, you know, everyone has an Asian friend and certainly um, very few actually know about the history of them. Very, very few. So that's something I certainly encourage. Absolutely. The last thing, you know, read, read an Asian American author. There's, there's a few ones out there. I mean, Kathy Park Hong, I mean, her, her, her writings is just very powerful. We put that in the notes there as well. Uh, highly Viet, Viet Don Wen. I mean, they, these are folks who are carrying an experience of both um, trauma, but also an experience of, that's a very American experience. And I think that's just something that everybody should read in here. Let's get educated. It's just this, it's just a little, it's, it's the part you can control. It, and it's, you know, it, it can be when you're on your run. It could be for, you know, when you're, when you're tidying your house, whatever, whatever it is, it's, we just need more. We just need more explicit learning about our neighbors, our friends, our loved ones, our colleagues, our peers. We know so little about our own people. It's quite shocking. What's your opinion on school curricula? On school curriculum? Well, I believe very much that we should be teaching as much as we can in the ethnic studies space. Um, you know, whether that's a requirement um, at a school level, I think schools can decide what they deem a good thing. But what's for sure is we should be having this discussion. You know, the states of Illinois, states of New Jersey have enacted legislation to um mandate Asian American Pacific Islander curriculum at the K through 12 level. State of Florida, uh, one of the bodies in the legislature just passed legislation for Asian American history. So there's definitely a recognition that, uh, you know, from the, from our political and elected officials that this is important and worthy uh, opportunities to learn. How that actually happens in reality, I couldn't tell you, but it's certainly the right steps and the right steps forward. Jeff, I feel like we could keep on going on. We could find some additional topics. You know, from when you're interested in this area, you kind of start to dig in. So I think we should pause <laughs> rather than 
adding some additional topics. But man, you have opened up my eyes. You've offered some real education to me just in these couple little minutes. And I feel so much better having had this conversation. Now, would you be interested in us coming back another time to do a little bit more, to dig in a little bit further? I mean, surely I'm not going to say no. I love having the conversations <laughs> with you. I mean, I just wish we had a little more drinks on. If I were to be Listen, we can make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I'll have to put in my order in advance. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much. We're going to put that information in the show notes and your article is in Politico. It was dated April 3rd, 2021 in politico.com. And again, I'll put a link to that so everyone could get a sense of who you are, the perspective that you're coming from, and really kind of give some context to this conversation of equity. So Jeff, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Shirley. That was great. Thanks for listening in today. On the next show, we'll be speaking with Ms. Tangela Irby, educator and author, Preserving Culture. Special thanks to our producer, Raynette Shafu, and executive producer, David DeRoche. Shout out and big thanks to the Fluid Truth crew for their assistance. That's Johnny Marquat, Jackie Callanan, and Jake McCarthy. Music is provided by Audio Hero from their Jazz Lounge album. To learn more about all of our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. You can listen to our podcast on the platform or app of your choice. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at QU Podcasts. If you have a story to share or something you want to talk about, find us on social media or shoot us an email. The address is QUPodcasts at QU.edu. All right. That's it for today. Till next time.